Hi, this is Andrew Phillips. Thank you for downloading the Gramier Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions or if you'd like to contact us, check out our website at gramier.com. We'd also love for you to visit with us in a worship service. You're always welcome at Gramier Church of Christ. Who shall sin on the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, and who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. It was just an old scrapbook that was tucked away in an attic upstairs. Maybe you've got some scrapbooks like that. Uh, Some photos were there and some documents. But as a woman named Greet was cleaning out her attic, she didn't think too much about it until she started flipping through some of the pages. And she saw that there were pictures there, uh, pictures of a lot of different people, a lot of different individuals, many of them young, some of them very young children, along with travel documents. And these were things that dated to 50 years ago. And so she asked her husband about it because the dates on the travel documents would have been before they had met and were married. And it wasn't until she asked her husband, Nicholas Winton, what had happened that he explained. Early on in his career as a stockbroker, he'd become involved with groups that were helping uh, children, specifically Jewish children, uh, during the times when Nazis were starting to occupy different areas helping to deliver them and to bring them to England. And so on a trip to Czechoslovakia, he decided to compile a list uh, and to find sponsors and to find families to take care of these children. Researchers estimate that there were 669 children who were delivered from the Holocaust due to his work, his work with Britain, making sure they could get a passage and a trains, trains through the Netherlands. And so you can see Uh, the monument here uh, to the way in which he was able to help them find secure passage, did all of that, over 600 people whose lives, even if they didn't understand it at the time, were saved, and he just hadn't mentioned it to his wife. It had never really come up. And so she shared the material with a local reporter, and the reporter published a local story, and sort of thought this would be the end of it, a newspaper story in the local paper for everyone to read. But people started becoming very interested, started researching the individuals whose lives had been saved. And while there were over 300 that they couldn't track down, there were also many that they could. And so in 1988, he was invited to be in the taping of a British television show. Uh, And as he sat down in the studio audience, the host read the uh, excerpts from his scrapbook described the story to everyone and then told him that the woman sitting next to him was one of the children whose lives he had saved and so he turned and was able to see her it was a beautiful a powerful moment and then she told him there was another person there another woman whose life he had saved when she was a child in fact she asked if there was anyone there who owed their lives to his work to stand up. Over 30 people stood, and he turned to see the faces of individuals whose lives he had saved. It's hard to, to capture the kinds of emotions that would be going through your mind at a time like this. 
And then the host asked if there was anyone there who had a parent or a grandparent who owed their lives to his work. And everyone in the studio audience was standing. It's a powerful moment to come face to face with someone who's done something so meaningful and so special for you. Can you imagine the kind of emotions that would have been surging through him as he starts to see people, individuals whose names might have been written in a scrapbook, but he didn't know, and individuals who were probably too young to fully appreciate what was happening until later. And they get a chance to see the person who had helped them face to face. There's something powerful about face-to-face communication. There may be people you admire, and it might be nice to get an email from them. It might even be more meaningful to get a handwritten letter from them. But if you could meet that person, if you could see them face-to-face, there's just something that's irreplaceable about that. And it's that idea of being face-to-face with one who saved us that features very prominently in the beatitude we're talking about this morning. We've been going through this series on what it means to be blessed, uh, what it means to look at the kind of life that Jesus says is blessed, almost in a sense of congratulating, saying, yes, I'm pronouncing that this is a blessed, this is a fortunate kind of life. And as we've gone through each of these Beatitudes, uh, every week as I'm looking at the Beatitude we're focusing on that week, I have the same thought, which is, I think this is the hardest one. I think this is the hardest one I've had to... I know last week was tough, but I, this would be really hard. And then the next week, you know, I thought last week's was tough, but I, I don't know, this one may be the hardest. And I've had that feeling this week when we think about what it means to be pure in heart. We've sung songs that have focused us on what that looks like. As we've thought about what it means to be purified to have all those things that aren't of God taken away from us, to have pure hearts that are focused on seeing Jesus face to face. And as we sung just a few moments ago, uh, the idea that Jesus would draw us ever nearer, that, that we could encounter Him face to face, we've joined in with followers of God who for centuries have longed to see God face to face. That's what Moses wanted. Moses wanted to see the glory of God. God had to protect Moses from that glory because no man could see God and live. But it's a desire. It's what we want. I mean, if we want to see people face to face who we admire, if we'd love to be reunited with people who we love and who are so meaningful to us on this earth face to face, if it's tough when we're separated from people, how much more do we long to see the one who created us and the one who saved us? And as we do that, we're joining in a group of people that have longed to see God all throughout Scripture. It's a group that God has held up in His Word. Those who are pure in heart. A.J. read for us from the 24th Psalm. The psalmist is describing those who could ascend to the place of the Lord. Who can stand in His holy place? And here's the answer. One who has clean hands and a pure heart. And then the psalmist goes on to describe what that looks like. What does it look like for someone to have clean hands and a pure heart? Well, it looks like someone who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, who has not sworn deceitfully. Psalm 73 would remind us that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. What does it mean for us to have pure hearts? 
we know on a surface level what that might looks like, look like. We can think of what we understand purity to be or what we understand a heart to be. But let's take just a moment to think about the way Scripture describes our hearts. You can probably guess it's not just about the physical organ pumping blood that we think of. There's something deeper here. A lot of times when we think about our heart today, we sort of separate our brain and our heart. Our, our brain, our mind, our head, that's where we imagine uh, thinking and logic and decisions being made. And our heart is kind of pure emotion, right? When we feel a feeling, when we feel an emotion, that's what we associate with the heart. Uh, in the Hebrew language, and as we see that uh, imagery used in Scripture, uh, that's not really the way heart is used. When it comes to a compassion, in the Hebrew language, compassion wasn't something that came from the heart. Uh, compassion was something that we see the phrase, the bowels of compassion being used. Not quite as poetic, but we know what it means to have a gut feeling, right? To, to kind of have a feeling in your gut you're not sure about. The heart in Scripture is described not just as a place of emotion, but as a place where our will is determined. Here's the way one commentator described it. The, in a psychological sense, the heart is described as the seat of man's collective energies, the focus of personal life, the seat of the rational as well as the emotional and volitional elements in human life. Hence that wherein lies the moral and religious condition of the man. Did you notice all of those things that are involved? It's not just emotional. It's also the focus of rational thinking. Decisions are made in my heart. And then volitional, a matter of a will. I decide to do something. And when I decide to do it, that's in my heart. So when we think about purity, we're not just thinking about purity in the things that we feel. We're talking about purity in the things that we feel and that we think and that we decide. That's a big picture for us to consider this morning. And I'd like for us just to consider it from a few different angles. Uh, there are sometimes we can look through the text and we can see specific points that are made that are kind of separate from each other. So we might read a passage and say, this passage has this point here and this here and this here. This morning, we're going to be thinking about one point. We're centering our mind on that idea of purity of heart. We're just going to look at it from different angles. And as we do, I think we're going to see different nuances and different challenges that come with it. The first sort of angle we look at as we think about the way purity is described in Scripture is we're thinking about a cleansed heart. We're looking at a heart that has been cleansed, that there's something that has happened that has washed the heart clean. Now, if we look at what Scripture has to say about our hearts, we might think that seems like a pretty unlikely source for purity. Listen to the way Jesus describes what comes out of the heart. Out of the heart, Matthew 15, 19, come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. Jesus is saying all of these things that happen, actions that when we see them, we say that's not right, that's not in line with God's will. Jesus says they happen in the heart. That might not seem like a very likely candidate or let's have a place of purity here. But it shows how important that is. If my heart is pure, what flows out of it will follow suit. Now the term for cleansing would describe something that had been dirty, but washed clean. We might think about the phrase, create in me a clean heart. David praying in the Psalms, give me a clean heart. 
We know what had happened in David's life. We know the sin that had taken place. He wanted to be cleansed. And so it's not something that is clean in the sense as it's never been spoiled. There's never been anything impure. There's never been anything wrong with it. But it's been cleansed. It's been washed. This is one of those areas that the understanding the Israelites had of being ceremonially clean probably helps. It's not something that we're as familiar with, but they knew what it was like before they were going to do something that was important, that was significant, that they be ritually purified, made clean. And so there were traditions. There were traditions of being immersed. There were traditions of washing, immersing your hands, dipping your hands. There were things that needed to happen so you could maintain that cleanliness. There was something about that that was important. And when something happened that made you unclean, it wasn't that you were unclean forever. It was just there were steps that needed to be taken during that time. And once you go through those proper steps, then you can be cleansed. And so when Jesus is talking about what it means to have purity, they have an understanding that maybe we don't have quite as readily. But it's one of the things that makes the imagery of baptism so powerful. Uh, the idea of immersion took place before Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2. Before he talks about being immersed in the water, the Jews understood what it was like to walk down the steps of a ritual bath or of a mikvah and be immersed and then be purified for a specific activity. But what happens in Acts chapter 2 is when people are struggling with the greatest guilt I can ever imagine feeling, the realization that they'd been waiting on the Messiah, that the Messiah had come, and they'd crucified Him, and they're asking, they're begging, they're hurting in their hearts, what are we going to do? Peter says that through Jesus Christ, this action that they'd seen before now has a significance that's unlike anything else. Because now through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you can have forgiveness of your sins. And it's not something that happens as a result of uh, your own skill and ability any more than the Jews who were being purified or immersed in these ritual baths thought that they were earning anything. They were simply doing what had been asked by God. And now Peter is saying, when you're baptized into Christ, you are washed, you are made clean. You're cleansed. Your heart is cleansed. And therefore, it's, it's set aside for a specific purpose. We focused and sung about holiness and purity. And the idea of holiness and sanctification is being set aside and set apart. And what's even more encouraging as we keep flipping through the pages of Scripture is that when we get to 1 John, John says that if we're walking in the light, if we're living in the light, then the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from all sins. And so one of the things that makes baptism in the New Testament different than the purification rituals the Israelites had is the same thing that makes the sacrifice of Jesus different than the sacrifices the Israelites had. Because the sacrifice of Jesus is once for all. You don't have to make animal sacrifices anymore. The purification that happens in baptism, when I'm baptized into Christ, if I'm walking in the light, that continually cleanses me of my sins. There's a continual cleansing that happens there. And so it reminds me that when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's not just saying we should seek to be pure in heart. I, I think that's part of it. As we read through these Beatitudes, I, I don't want us to walk away uh, so discouraged 
that we think, I can never live like that. I mean, they're supposed to encourage us to live this way, to hunger and thirst after righteousness, to live lives that are meek. So it's not that they aren't principles to be obeyed. They are principles. But they're also more than that. They're promises of what God does for us. Blessed are the pure in heart. Well, how could I be pure in heart without God? How could I do that? I couldn't do it on my own. None of us could. None of us could purify ourselves on our own. And so Jesus isn't just saying, this is how you should live. As we see all throughout Scripture, He's not just reminding us of what we should do. He's also reminding us of what He has done and what He has given us. Both of those things are true. When I read the Beatitudes, I do need to walk away saying, this is the way I ought to live my life. I also need to walk away thanking God for the way He's enabling me to live this kind of blessed life because I couldn't do it on my own. What does it mean to be pure in heart? It means to be cleansed. But as we think about a way in which this term is used in Scripture and kind of look at it from a different angle, it also means to be purified. Not just washed clean, but also free from any impurity. The term would be used in the ancient world to describe uh, water that's free from any other kind of impurity. Uh, to describe in a winnowing process grain that had been winnowed and all the chaff had been blown away. When something is purified, it is only that substance. We even think about that today. If, if we think of a substance and we say this is pure, we're saying all that's in there is this one substance. There's nothing else making it impure. And Jesus would remind them that impure actions have their roots in the heart. When I'm purifying my heart, I'm making sure there's nothing else that's, that's sneaking in there, that's mixed in there, that's going to influence the way that I act. And so later on in this chapter, Matthew 5, 27, Jesus will say, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. That's true. That's a commandment. That's important. But he also says, I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Notice what Jesus is doing here. He's digging deeper. He's saying, you focused on impure actions, and that's important, but I'm telling you where impure actions begin, they begin in the heart. So if I want to address the actions, I need to address the heart. I'm not going to make a lot of uh, progress if I'm focused only on behavior modification and not at the root cause of where that's coming from. Not too many verses later, Jesus would say, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. How do we need to live among people differently? Jesus says it begins with not just refusing to hurt our enemies, not just saying, I'm going to be so gracious because I'm going to decide I'm not going to hurt this person. He says, start praying for that person. Start thinking about ways you can show that person love. You see the difference there? It comes from the heart. If we purify what's in our hearts, then that's going to affect every aspect of our lives. Now take just a minute and think about how different that is than the way we often conceptualize our hearts. We, we think of today, well, we've just got to follow your heart. You know, just go after what the heart wants. What does your heart think? How does it feel in your heart? 
But Jesus tells us, as we've already read, that there are a lot of impure things that can come from my heart. Just because something comes from my heart, from my decision, from my emotional response, doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. I want to have that heart purified. And the more that I do that, the more that I'm subjecting my will to God's will, the more those actions that flow out of my heart are going to follow suit. They're going to be pure. And so one of the things that happens, especially, uh, we see this in the Old Testament prophets, they'll point out the way in which God's people might be going through motions, but their hearts aren't pure. And because their hearts aren't pure, their actions outside of worship aren't consistent with that. And so even if I'm worshiping regularly, if I find myself involved in things during the week that aren't what I should be involved in, I I need to not only think about modifying my behavior, that's important. Maybe I need to figure out, okay, I've, I've got got habits that need to be broken. I've got things I need to stop doing. But I also want to look deeper and say, what's in my heart that shouldn't be there? What am I holding on to that I need to be willing to let go of and to submit to God? Our hearts are cleansed. Our hearts are purified. And only through God and the work of Jesus and His Spirit in our lives, our hearts are focused. When we think about being pure in heart, it gives us the image of a single-minded focus that all I'm thinking of is doing what's right. That that's all that there is. Another sort of nuance that comes when we use the word pure today is that if something is purely a specific substance, that's all that there is. That all I can do, as I look through everything, it's all going to be purely this one substance. And that's challenging, isn't it? For us to focus on our hearts. For us to have the kind of heart that is only always seeking after God. It's kind of the opposite of what we read about in Genesis. Before the time of Noah, there's this statement. Uh, during, well, during Noah's time, before the time in which he builds the ark, that the thoughts of mankind were only evil all the time. There was a single-minded focus during his time of human beings doing just what they wanted to do. Jesus is describing a different kind of focus, a single-minded focus that's only on serving God. James picks up on this in James chapter 4 and verse 8 when he says, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What does purity include? It includes being single-minded, uh, of focusing on God, not saying, well, I'm going to believe in God, but I'll hedge my bets and I'll also uh, believe in something else or do something different. No, only God, only that focus. And that focus also comes when we realize God is our only hope. We thought earlier about this a desire to be seen by God, to see Him face to face. Hebrews 12 describes peace with all men and sanctification being set apart, being purified, without which no one will see the Lord. If I want to see the Lord face to face, I want to pursue that purification. When we get all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation 22, one of the rewards of God's people in verse 4 is that they will see His face. That That's a destination that we're working towards. Paul said we see as if in a mirror dimly right here, and we do. 
But we still get glimpses of God. There are times we can get glimpses of our Creator. This weekend, there were several involved in our men's retreat. I, I think uh, adding up the people who were there the whole weekend and those who came up for the day on Saturday, we had over 30 men that were there uh, and that were at a lodge and had a great time of uh, focus and fellowship and devotional times. But also there's something about just being in nature. And just yesterday afternoon, just looking at the trees and looking around at God's creation, there are just times we get glimpses of our Creator. It's not quite the face-to-face -face reunion that Scripture describes, but we do get glimpses. Some of us have been able to see glimpses of God over the last several weeks. I appreciate Joe praying for uh, those that have passed away that are members of our church family here. And we've dealt with a lot of loss over the last several weeks. And there are many family, families here that have seen God's work through family members and through brothers and sisters in Christ as we've sought to follow that scriptural example of weeping with those who weep. There are times when we're hurting and someone comes to us and they model for us the compassion of Christ when we get to see a glimpse, just a glimpse of the God that we serve. We also see glimpses of God when we rejoice together. Uh, we don't just weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And we've had reason to rejoice over the last several weeks with uh, different families. We're, we're thankful. I'm thankful as we've prayed for uh, Mapalo and his journey here. And we're thankful that he's uh, been able to get here safely and be here with his family. We rejoice with that. Uh, we've rejoiced and celebrated the fact that we have additional deacons serving God together. We're rejoicing with their families. We get glimpses, both in the good times and the bad, of the God that we serve. We're thankful for that. But there is a time when we could be able to see Him face to face. Jesus says that's the reward for those who are pure in heart. Why are the pure in heart blessed? They're blessed because when hearts are, are cleansed, when they're purified, when they're focused only on God, their reward is that they will be able to see Him face to face. I think there's going to be a movie made about the life of Nicholas Winton. And I think it's going to include, I'm sure it will include, that final scene where he's in the studio audience of a taping of a television show. And I know they can do a lot with movies and cinematography and music and all of those things, but I just don't know if you could ever fully recreate the power of emotion that comes when you get to see someone face-to-face -face and you get to share to that person, to that individual, what they mean to you. As Jesus describes the reward for those who are pure in heart of seeing God, He's reminding us of what we long for as His children. We long to see Him. We have the same desire that Moses had to see His glory. And we're reminded of the ability we'll have to do that one day. We'll do that if we have pure hearts. And the message of the Gospel is that we can't purify our hearts by ourselves. I can't cleanse my heart by myself. But thanks to God's plan, thanks to Jesus' sacrifice, 
thanks to the message of the gospel, I can have my heart cleansed. I can have all my sins forgiven. The things, no matter how terrible they might be, no matter how guilty I may still feel and wrestle with them, when they, I'm, I'm buried with Jesus in baptism, when I raise up, those sins have been forgiven. My heart has been cleansed. And it may be that you need that cleansing this morning. That you need your heart to be purified. We would love to celebrate that with you. If you need to put Christ on in baptism as a church family, we'd love to encourage you. It may be that you want to start that journey of understanding what this means and you've got questions. We'd love to just study God's Word with you. It may be that you could use some prayers and encouragement. Uh, right after our worship service here, if you go right out this doorway, a couple of our shepherds will be there and they'd be glad to sit down with you and talk with you, pray with you privately. But it may be that coming forward and sharing with your whole church family would give you a chance to get a glimpse of God and a glimpse of God's love and compassion as we encourage you. Let's leave here today determined that we're going to live lives that could be described as being pure in heart. If there's any way we can help you this morning, please come and let us know as we stand and as we all sing together.